for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them And he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thank you, Chad. Sean, thank you for leading us this morning. Great to have you back. Hang in there. (laughs) Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll just dive right in. Um, It's going to be Genesis chapter 40. We're going to look at 40 and 41. Page 22, if you're using our Bibles uh, that are underneath the the chairs. Holy and gracious God, we uh, come to your word now and we just, as we open it, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts uh, that we might see and hear, uh, we might understand uh, what it is that you have for us. There are so many correlations between this story and, and Joseph's life and the other characters and how you work in our lives today and how we work in our lives today. So help us, teach us and instruct us from that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I'll remind you that we have study guides for these uh, series and they're very helpful that you can find those at the Connect desk. Kind of review a little bit what we did last week because it was a lot last week. We covered three chapters last week. Uh, We start the story of Joseph where he's 17 years old. He's got 11 brothers. Uh, He's kind of a snot to his brothers, arrogant, and his brothers get angry and they decide that they're going to kill him. And then in a moment of mercy, they decide, nah, we're not going to really kill him. Why would we want to do that to our little brother? And so instead, they sell him into slavery, and they send him down to Egypt. And um, uh, he goes down there. He starts to work for a guy named Potiphar, who's the captain of the guard. Essentially, he would be the um, uh, chief executive of the Secret Service, okay? He's in charge of security for Pharaoh and for the entire nation. So he's probably the third most powerful guy in in the world, and he's a slave now of Potiphar's. In the meantime, we have chapter 38, which is a concurrent interlude with the life of Joseph. In 38, we cover about 20 years of Brother Judah's uh, life, and he has this interlude with Tamar, and that's very interesting. And we will see next week especially how um, that story in 38 advances the story of Joseph later on, and and Judah becomes, in a sense, a Christ figure in the story of Joseph for us. And then we switch back to 39, and here's Joseph working for Potiphar. He's been with Potiphar now for 11 years, and he's doing really well. Potiphar has uh, seen that God is with Joseph, and he likes that. And everything that Joseph does is really good, and so he advances uh, Joseph up through the ranks of Potiphar Enterprises, and now Joseph is in charge of his entire household. He's still a slave, but he's in charge. And then Ms. Potiphar decides that she must have Joseph, and so she comes after him. And uh, Joseph says, "Mm, nope, I can't do that. I can't sin against uh, my master, your husband, Potiphar, and I can't sin against my heavenly master either, God, and so I'm not going to do that. Well, she decides to make up a story of what Joseph does to her. She tells her husband, Potiphar, and I believe um, that against against what he really wants to do, Potiphar is forced to send Joseph to prison 
Um, in, in that day and age, if you, messed, if you attempted to mess around with somebody's wife, you would have just been executed. I think that's an indication that maybe Potiphar didn't necessarily believe his wife, but he had to do something in order to save face for his wife. So he sent him into prison. And that's kind of where we stand today. Uh, one of the big things that we got out of last week, and this is really important. I'm just going to keep pounding on this because we live in a culture where we expect instant gratification. We expect stories to resolve themselves quickly. We want everything in our lives perfectly wrapped up by 5 o'clock this afternoon every single day. And that's just not the way God works. God's stories take time. And in that, He appreciates Things like long obedience in the same direction. He wants us to understand that you and I need to engage in the journey and the process with God and He'll take care of the results. Let's get our minds off the results and engage with the journey and the process. He also wants to develop our character rather than developing our kingdom. You and I tend to want to develop our kingdom rather than our character. He says, no, we're going to work on your character, and developing character takes time. We're going to talk a little bit more about that again later. And then we kind of wrapped up last week by saying, consider Jesus' journey to the cross. That thing took 33 years, and even then it wasn't over with the cross. The disciples and those who were following him still had to wait another three days to find out that God was still working even in Jesus' death, and, and then Jesus came out of uh, the tomb to give life. So today's um, theme is kind of centered around dreams. We're going to talk a lot about dreams today because there are dreams in both of these chapters. They play a central role in advancing the story. So let's get started with the story. Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 4, which were the uh, verses that uh, Chad read. Again, uh, page 22 if you're using our Bibles under the chairs. Sometime after this, this is sometime after uh, Joseph... Um, had been sent to prison for what happened with uh, Ms. Potiphar, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker uh, committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. And pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard, interesting, in the prison where Joseph was confined, uh, confined, not combined, confined, And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. A number of things I want to unpack here uh, quickly. First of all, we have that uh, title again, captain of the guard. Is this Potiphar? Is this the guy against whom Joseph supposedly committed this sin of trying to uh, um, uh, have a little uh, rendezvous with his wife? And the captain of the guard, Potiphar, has now got him in prison, yet he's promoting him up through the ranks. Is that possibly happening? Yes, it is possible that that's happening. This, uh, most commentators would say this is one and the same people. And the reason they say that is because this prison was actually on Potiphar's land, so he was in charge of this prison. Uh, supposedly. Uh, Second of all, I talked a little bit about this last week. A lot of commentators really don't believe that Potiphar was that angry at Joseph, but was really more angry at his wife. Okay. And third, even if none of that is true, maybe the reason is that Potiphar is a dispassionate manager who no matter what, just wants to put the best person in charge of the most important responsibility. And Joseph had demonstrated over and over and over because God was with him that he was somebody who was faithful and reliable and loyal no matter what you threw at him. So it it has to be one of those three things if, in fact, it is Potiphar. 
And we have an introduction of two new characters into the story. The baker and the cupbearer get thrown into prison. Both of these would be considered cabinet positions in Pharaoh's um, administration. They are very high up, and, and, and we need to understand what those are. The chief baker is pretty easy to understand. Uh, if we related it to somebody in the White House, it would be the executive chef of the White House, the person who's in charge of all the food preparation, all the banquets uh, for the president and the first family and for all of his guests whenever they entertain. So uh, this is an important job. He's doing the same thing for Pharaoh. The chief cupbearer, though, is, is something that we're maybe not quite as familiar with. In antiquity, if you wanted to overthrow a regime... Most often, it was not done with violent confrontation through armies. Most often, the way you would overthrow a regime, commit a coup, rebel against the regime, is you would find a way to assassinate the, the king or, or the pharaoh or the president or whoever it was. And the, 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 the way that most people wanted to do that was by poisoning their food somehow or, or maybe poisoning their wine. So the chief cupbearer's job, and this, again, a very high up position, okay, the chief cupbearer's job was to taste and drink all food and drink that the uh, king and the first family were going to eat before they ate it. He would sample the food, sample the wine that would eventually be served to them, and if the cupbearer did not die, then the king and his family would eat. But if the cupbearer died, they would go to Jack in the Box that night. They would have something else to eat that day. And then the next day, the king would start interviewing for a new cupbearer. Could you imagine what it would be like to be a cupbearer in antiquity? I would imagine it would be hard to get life insurance, for instance. It would be kind of like putting down that you're a hang glider or something like that. I think it would be... And if, and if you were ever you know, sitting around in your cupbearer's office and you heard through the grapevine that there was a rebellion in the water somewhere, you know, you might take your two weeks vacation then and let the assistant cupbearer handle things for a while, just, just in case. Now, I don't think the White House has this as a position, at least not that we know of. I imagine they have security procedures for the food, but I don't know that they necessarily have a cupbearer. So look at the next four verses now in chapter 4 and, and watch as the story advances. So one night, both the cupbearer and the baker dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in prison each had his own dream and each dream had its own interpretation. But they didn't know what the interpretation was. So when Joseph came to them in the morning and he saw that they were troubled, other uh, translations say that they saw, he saw that they were distressed or downcast. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret the dreams. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell your dreams to me. In other words, God has given me this gift. I'm not the one who can interpret your dreams, but God can and I have this gift. So tell me your dreams. Now, a couple things here I want to unpack, too. First of all, look at the sensitivity that Joseph has towards others who are troubled. Joseph is now 11 years into this gig where he has had one devastating blow after another. God has either caused or allowed these things to happen in his life. If ever there was somebody who had a right to say, I want everybody else to look and see how distressed I am, and I want them to come and serve me, it would be Joseph, but not Joseph. This is a demonstration of his faithfulness to God 
the fact that he continues to look at other people and serve other people and find out other, if other people are distressed or having trouble and he goes and tries to help them. This is a manifestation of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility consider other people better than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, it's okay to take care of yourself, but be outward focused and be ready to help others. And this is Joseph, even after 11 years of getting beat up. Then we have this issue of dream interpretation. Probably not a huge deal to most of us today. It was a big deal again in antiquity. In fact, um, kings and pharaohs had another cabinet position, dream interpreter, a very high up position. And this person uh, who was a dream interpreter had to go through years and years of training to become a good dream interpreter. They had schools and they had scrolls that helped them to interpret. It would be almost like going to seminary for dream interpretation. And then they would go into service for the kings. And the kings would would do a lot of their uh, economic and military planning based off the interpretations of their dreams that their dream interpreters had given to them. So this was a, a big, big position. And because the cupbearer and the baker were also cabinet positions, they had constant and instantaneous access to the dream interpreter. So that's why they had these dreams and they, and they tell Joseph, we had these dreams, but we don't have anybody to interpret them now because we're in prison and he didn't throw the dream interpreter into prison uh, with us. And Joe's response to this is, it's all God. Now, now again, in Joseph's attitude... After all the things that God has caused or allowed to happen to him in his life, Joseph could have said, well, tell me, and kind of treated it arrogantly like he did 11 years earlier when he was 17 with his brothers. And he could hey, tell me, because I can help you out with this. Instead, he doesn't. He says, look, the God, the Lord God, Yahweh can interpret these for you. Tell me your dreams and I'll help you out. Not because I'm special, but because God is special. Again, Joe demonstrating that he uh, remains faithful. And so here's the cupbearer's dream. The the cupbearer goes first. He says, here's my dream. There's three vines, and on these three vines are these grapes. And I took the grapes, and I made a nice glass of wine for Pharaoh, and I placed the cup of wine in, in Pharaoh's hands. And so Joseph says, well, here's the interpretation. The three vines represent three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That is an expression of honor and appreciation in that in that culture. He will lift up your head. He will suspend your sentence and you will be restored to service for the king. So you're getting out of here in three days. It's good news. And then Joseph says, listen, when you are restored, you have access to the king who can do whatever he wants. Would you tell him about me? Would you explain to him that that I was unjustly sold into slavery by my brothers? I don't belong down here in Egypt. Would you also explain to him that I was unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and I don't belong? I have committed no crime, but here I am in prison. Would you tell the king about me and get me out of here? And again, I think this is a really important point for us to understand. We teach all the time, Scripture teaches all the time, that life is going to be hard. Those of you that are surprised, when trials and tribulation and suffering come, you're living in a fantasy world. Life is going to be hard, and we're going to have to endure trials and tribulation and suffering. But 
that does not mean that we're supposed to wallow in that and just give up any hope that we might be able to get out of those trials. Of course we want to get out of those trials. We should not negate our human nature to want to get out of those trials. God is with us in those trials, but sometimes He also provides ways out of those trials for us, and we should grab onto those ways and get us out. Joseph is demonstrating that here. He's saying, listen, if I have to remain in prison, I'll be faithful, but in case this is a way that you're going to get me out, God, please get me out of here. So he sends the cupbearer up uh, three days later with this message for Pharaoh. Now the baker's dream. The baker is sit, sit, sitting there watching this, and he sees that the cupbearer gets a favorable interpretation. So he enthusiastically says, hey, Joseph, what about me? Forget about you getting out of here. Now tell me the interpretation of my dream. Here's my dream. I had three baskets of delicious baked goods on my head, and out of the top uh, basket of baked goods, birds were eating the baked goods. What does it mean, Joseph? And, and Joseph doesn't hesitate. He doesn't mince words. He just says, well, here's your interpretation. The three baskets represent three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head, not up your head. He will lift off your head. He will hang you on a tree, which was a, uh, an ancient form of crucifixion, and the birds will eat your flesh. Not a very happy interpretation for the baker. And my guess is the baker's standing there going, I really hope Joseph is a quack, all right? So what happens? Look at verses 20 through 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that's an interesting detail, he, made, he, Pharaoh, made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and, and the head of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. That must have been some birthday party. Okay? Have you ever gone to a birthday party and they hung somebody? Okay, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Okay, we go. We have a pinata. Okay, they they hung a guy on a tree and had birds come and eat his flesh. It's some some kind of birthday celebration going on there. But then look at verse twenty three. This is really sad. Okay, verse twenty three says, "Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him." So this is outside of scripture, but I my imagination runs wild. Okay, and so I start to think. So the the cupbearer goes up. And Joseph figures, that cupbearer, is gonna, he's got my back, he's going to take care of me. And so he starts packing up his stuff, and he's going around to all the other prisoners going, hey, it was great to know you, I'm getting out of here in just you know, a couple of hours probably. Okay? And then a day goes by, no word. And he's like, well, the cupbearer had to get back and reorganize his office and hire a new admin, and so he's probably busy. He'll get around to it. And then a week goes by. Then a month goes by. Pretty soon he's unpacking his stuff and he's realizing that he's, for whatever reason, he doesn't know why, but he's there for a while. Look at the first verse of chapter 41. After two whole years. Scripture makes that clear. After two whole years. So, okay, so here you go. You would think after 11 years, God was done preparing Joseph for what he had for him. Joseph needed two more years. You might yet be two more years away from what God has prepared for you, okay? So two years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. You think this might advance the story since we're dealing with dreams here? The answer to that would be obviously yes. So let me tell you about the dreams that Pharaoh has. They're distressing dreams. 
Pharaoh has two dreams. First of all, he's standing on the Nile. In his first dream, seven beautiful cows come up out of the Nile. They're wonderful looking. And right after them, seven um, gaunt and ugly cows come up. And those seven gaunt and ugly cows eat up the seven beautiful cows. Yet, it did not change the appearance of the gaunt and ugly cows. They remain gaunt and ugly even though they just had this fine feast. Potiphar wakes up. He's distressed. Takes a little Robitussin. Goes back to sleep. And he has a second dream. That's outside of Scripture. There's no Robitussin in Scripture. Anyway, I just added that. So he goes back to sleep. He has a second dream. Seven ears of grain come up out of the Nile. Beautiful ears of grain ready for harvest. And they are followed by seven wind-withered ears of grain, awful looking. And the seven wind-withered ears of grain eat up the seven good ears of grain, but it does not change their appearance. They still look awful. And so Pharaoh wakes up, and now he's really distressed. And so he does what every king did in antiquity. He called for his dream interpreter and all of his assistants and they come in and he tells them these dreams and they are stumped they cannot they have no idea what the interpretation is of this dreams and and they tell the king and and by the way if you don't perform for the king in one of these jobs you could get whacked okay but they go ahead and tell him gosh boss we're sorry we don't know okay well the cupbearer is standing there watching all of this and he has like a v8 moment goes like Oh, that reminds me. And if you study the Greek, it literally, it literally says, I have sinned against this man. And he's talking about Joseph. But w- w- the way we interpret it is it's something like this. I have been reminded of my shortcomings. I've been reminded that I'm not very good at what I do. Okay. And then he tells the Pharaoh, he says, listen, remember a couple of years ago when you threw me and the baker down in the dungeon and, and uh, there was this guy there and we had dreams and he interpreted the dreams and his dreams came, the, the interpretations came true exactly as he said. And so uh, he, he says, why don't you go and get this guy? Pharaoh says, why don't you go and get this guy? And so look at verses 14 through 16. Pharaoh called and uh, sent and called for Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when they had shaved him and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. A couple reasons why you would shave and clean him up, okay? One, he's been in prison, okay? So um, even today's prison is very difficult with the hygiene, so you'd want to do that to clean him up. But also, Joseph is a Hebrew, and he's going to enter the epitome of Egyptian culture. And so they want to they want to sort of dress him up like he's an Egyptian. Now, Pharaoh knows he's a Hebrew, but they want to at least make it look like he's making an effort for Pharaoh. They don't want to, ang- they don't want to aggravate Pharaoh, okay? And so he went in, um, and, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, you, uh, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, it's not me, it's God. Tell me the dream, and God will interpret it for you through me. So again, we have to look at Joseph. He, he could have walked in with an attitude, with some measure of arrogance, but he doesn't. He walks in, he cleans himself up, tries to make himself look a little bit like an Egyptian, um, and, and is willing to submit to God and say, listen, Pharaoh, it's not... And it would have been very easy to say, Pharaoh, you have picked the right guy. Okay, and just sort of started to feather his nest. But he said, no, Pharaoh, it's not me. Tell me your dream, though, and, and I'll do it. And understand, if he comes through, he is probably saving the lives of the other dream interpreters if he's able to come through for this. So the dream interpreters are standing there. They've got something riding on this. 
Because, like I said, you know, kings back then, unlike people in power today, kings back then could be very temperamental and they could end the life of somebody who didn't perform. So Pharaoh says, here's my dreams. He says there were the cows and then the grains, uh, the, the, um, the heads of grain, the, the ears of grain. And then he says, and, 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 you know, I'm a little distressed by these dreams. And Joseph's reaction is, well, king, you should be a little bit distressed because there's bad times coming, but the good news is that God has told you this in time for you to prepare for what is coming. And so Joseph interprets the dreams. And again, he says, throughout the, all the interpretation, he keeps saying, God has revealed this. God has revealed this. God has revealed this. And he says, listen, your two dreams are different dreams, but they are the exact same message. And here's the message. And by the way, it's because of God's goodness that he's letting this happen to you, that, he's, that I, uh, he is interpreting these dreams. He says, here's what's going to happen. The seven beautiful cows and the seven wonderful grains, they represent seven years of incredible economic prosperity like Egypt has never seen before. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is going to shoot up to 20,000. We're going to be selling land by the square foot and people are going to be bidding on the land and it's going to be selling for more than asking price. And every home is going to have two cars. You're going to have a Wii. Everybody's going to have a smartphone. Even the six-year-olds are going to have a smartphone and they're going to be eating dinner every night at Roos Chris and everybody's going to have a a second home in Sholo or Telluride or, or, or whatever. It's going to be unbelievable for seven years. But then disaster is coming. After those seven years, the worst famine in the history of Egypt is coming. And let me just tell you something. 4,000 years ago, when somebody uttered the word famine, that was always followed by a great sucking sound. Everybody who was standing there listening to Joseph, when he said famine's coming, they would have gone, because that is the scariest thing they could have heard. It's like you and I hearing that another great depression is coming and it's going to be worse than the one that we had in the 30s. Uh, although I doubt that anybody in here was around for that one, okay? But it was bad news. He's like, so that seven years, the Dow's going to go from 20,000 down to 200. Um, you're going to be selling land by the acre, and really it's going to be hard to sell it. Nobody's going to want to buy it. And every household will have one meal a day. That's it. It's going to be top ramen noodles, and there's going to be no art coffee in Arcadia. That's it. No coffee. Not even at Circle K, okay? So here you go. This is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. And then Joseph takes a huge chance. He says, these 14 years are going to start right now, and I have a suggestion on how you should handle this. Joseph, a criminal, right out of prison, interpreted these dreams, and now he's telling the most powerful guy in the world, I have an idea that maybe you haven't thought of. That could be a little tricky and a little bit risky. So here's what happens. Look down at, um, let's see, where, where are we? 33 to 36. Uh, he, oh, he says, he says, here's the plan. Uh, I think that you should, uh, you, I'm sorry, I'm all screwed up here. No, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Okay, so he suggests the plan. We got that? We're good? Okay, I'm having a senior moment. Only 53 and I'm already having a senior moment. All right, here we go. He suggests the plan and here's, what, here's how Pharaoh responds to the plan. Verse 33. He says, now therefore, let Pharaoh... Oh, this is him suggesting the plan. Let, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man to set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land 
of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather the food for these good years that are coming and store them up under the authority of Pharaoh for the food for the food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be in reserve for the land uh, against uh, the seven years of famine that will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. So here's Joseph. He's saying, here's my plan. And this plan will save you from perishing during the seven bad years. Okay. Now, again, he takes a chance by suggesting this plan to Pharaoh. Uh, and one of the reasons he takes a chance is because he's a Hebrew and he's a criminal as far as Pharaoh knows. Not even a good upstanding Egyptian citizen would take a chance to suggest to Pharaoh that he's smarter than Pharaoh. Because again, uh, guys in charge back then could be very temperamental. And if you suggest to them, I'm smarter than you are, they could decide to just execute you even though Joseph has just done this wonderful favor for him. But look how Pharaoh responds. This is where I thought we were. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now this is significant because Pharaoh is not a believer in Joseph's God, yet Pharaoh sees Joseph's God working in Joseph, and he sees it to the extent that he says, I want this guy working for me in my cabinet. So look at verse uh, 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards uh, to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took a signet ring, which was a sign of power and legal authority, took it from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. All of this was indicating that Joseph now had all the power of Pharaoh. He just wasn't Pharaoh. Uh, essentially, he was the second most powerful man in the world now. And he made him ride in the second chariot and they called out before Joseph, bow the knee. Thus, he set, he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent... No one shall lift up a hand or a foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth Paneah. So Joseph gets a new name, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. And he gave Joseph in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphera, uh, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Okay. Now, it would be very tempting right now for me to go down uh, the road of teaching uh, biblical finance and economic principles, okay? Because God knows that we could use those. But suffice it to say, Joseph, in his plan, equates wisdom, financial wisdom, with discernment, planning, saving, and all those kinds of things that we as Americans have really demonstrated we're, we're not that good at. Uh, notice that Joseph did not say to Pharaoh, listen, during the seven years of plenty, let's go out and just spend money like it's going out of style because God knows we deserve it. And then when the seven years of famine comes, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to max out our credit cards. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, listen, we need a plan. We need to think about what the future is going to look like. We need discernment. Okay? And I know that in every room like this where there's a couple of hundred people, there are going to be people who really do believe that the Bible has nothing relevant to say to us today. Here's the challenge I have for you on that today. 
you realize that this story is 4,000 years old and the uh, economic principles and the financial principles that we find here have not changed in 4,000 years. It's just possible that God might have something to say about our finances. Have, have you ever read the book of Proverbs? It's an easy book. I mean, I graduated from North High School. Even I can read the book of Proverbs. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to understand the common sense and the wisdom that's in the book of Proverbs. And there's a lot of stuff in the book of Proverbs about finance and economics. And it would help us tremendously. I'm telling you right now that if all of us and and our government and corporations handled money biblically, we wouldn't be in a lot of the messes that we are in right now. So Joseph presents this plan to, to Pharaoh and Pharaoh makes him essentially the grain czar. He says, you're going to be the second most powerful person in the world. Now, in seven years, there's going to be this terrible famine everywhere, not just in Egypt, but everywhere. And Joseph is going to be in charge of all the grain. And the only way that you can get grain during the famine is if you come and see Joseph. Does anybody sense a potential future confrontation between the new grain czar and a family of 11 brothers living 200 miles away in Canaan? That's what's going to happen next week. So this chapter ends with, uh, with the Scripture explaining that Joseph sets out during those seven years of plenty. He goes out and he, and he institutes his plan. And the Scripture tells us that he collects so much grain in all of the cities in Egypt that they lost track of how much they collected. They just threw their clipboards aside and they said, we can't even keep track of it, just keep filling the storehouses. And they had all of this grain prepared... And then the seven years of famine started. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week. But let me tell you a little bit more about what happens during those first seven years. Joseph gets married to Aseneth, and they have two sons. And Joseph names the sons. Listen to this. He names the first son Manasseh, which literally means God has helped me forget all the hardship in my father's house. And he names the second son Ephraim, which means God has blessed me with fruit in the land of my affliction. And I get two things out of that that I think are pretty important. Number one, Joseph, by naming his sons this, just recognizes that God is in charge, God is sovereign, and God is faithful no matter what his circumstances are. But second of all, we also recognize in what Joseph named his sons that there's a lot of pain that Joseph has. Joseph has gone through 13 years. He's 30 years old now. Nearly half of his life has been one defeat, one unjust action against him after another. Nearly half of his life. Don't you think that he's going to have some pain over that? And what he names his sons indicates, I have faith in God, yet I am still in pain. It's okay to have pain. It's okay to admit that we have pain. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because I have found, and I've been as guilty of this as anyone, I have found that sometimes you and I as Christians, as Christ followers, we can be too quick to gloss over the genuine pain of other people. We can be too quick to try to just throw a little Bible verse or a little cliche at somebody's pain and not enter into their pain and recognize that they are having pain and try to help them through that with God's help. And that's the kind of person Joseph has been. And maybe it's because Joseph has suffered so much pain that he's good at helping others with their pain. It's kind of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 
where Paul says, listen, the sufferings that you have been through, God has comforted you in those sufferings. Now you can go and comfort other people in their sufferings with the same comfort that God has given you. So we're set up for next week. Next week is going to be the famine, and we're going to have that confrontation between Joseph and his brothers. That's going to be really interesting, more great storytelling. But there's three things that I want you to take home today from today's story that I think are really important. So three take-home points as we close. First of all, Joseph's new name is Zephanath Paneah. It literally means God speaks and lives. And it's interesting to me that Pharaoh named Joseph God speaks and lives. So literally, if it was, if you saw Joseph today and called him by his English name, you would say, hey, God speaks and lives, come over here. That's what you would call him. Okay? And it's interesting that Pharaoh would name him that because that's an, an, an indication that Pharaoh has seen in Joseph that the living God, Yahweh, does speak and live. But also, it's appropriate that Joseph has been named that because Joseph demonstrates during these 13 years of difficulty that God is speaking and living in his life. It would have been very easy for Joseph to say, I'm done with God based on all the things that he went through, but instead he hung on to his faith that God was speaking and living in his life. He is, uh, let, me, let me just turn there. You don't have to turn there, but let me turn there. He is the epitome of Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2, which says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Even though things were going very badly for Joseph during those 13 years, he held on to God as his refuge and he placed his faith and trust in God. And I also think that during this time, Joseph recognized that he blew it at first, with this special gift of dream interpretation that God gave to him. Do you remember when he was 17, in chapter 37, he had these dreams? Instead of using his ability to interpret those dreams to faithfully serve his brothers, instead he gathered his brothers around and he lorded that gift over his brothers in arrogance, in pride. Now, he's got the, he still has the gift of dream interpretation, but notice that he is only using it in humble service to other people. And the whole time he uses it, he's pointing at God and saying, this is what's happening. It's God who is giving me these interpretations. He didn't humbly go to his brothers and say, hey guys, God gave me this interpretation for your own good. And He went and said, good news, I'm going to rule over you guys and you're going to bow to me. Okay? So God has used this very difficult time in his life to shape his humility. And I believe that's one of the reasons why he's named Zephanath Paneah. God speaks and lives because Pharaoh saw it and Joseph lived it. Second of all, Joseph has this incredible life that we have seen of patience and perseverance. Now, you and I, if we're honest, we would really like our character to be made up of things like patience and perseverance, right? I would like to be a person of perseverance and patience. They're really two sides of the same coin. I'd like to be somebody of courage and character, of patience and courage, somebody of contentedness. But I'll tell you what, I'm not that anxious to go through the stuff it takes to make me like that. All of us want that stuff, but we want it like this. 
there's a kind of a cheesy movie, but I still love it. And there's some truth in this. There's some really good truth in this movie. It's called Evan Almighty. Has anybody seen that movie? Okay. There's a great scene later. You know, Evan's wife is really struggling with this whole boat thing and the beard and all that stuff. And there's a great scene towards the end of the movie where she's in this sort of lunch cafe thing. And God, who is being played by Morgan Freeman, very good selection by the uh, casting crew, by the way, all right? Better than Al Pacino, I think. Uh, So Morgan Freeman's playing God, and he's got a little name tag on, and it's Almighty, that's his name, Almighty. So he walks, he sees that Evan's wife is distressed, just like Joseph did, and he walks over and he starts this conversation. What's going on? You look upset. Can you talk to me a little bit? And she says, I'm really worried about this idea of courage. I wish that I wish that God would just give me courage. And and, and uh, Morgan Freeman's character looks at her and said, "Let me ask you something. When you and I pray for courage, do you think God just gives us courage, or does He place us in situations where we have the opportunity to be courageous?" And it just clicked with her. She said, "I get it. I can't just pray for courage and get it. I have to be placed in situations." where I am required to behave courageously. It's the same thing with patience. It's the same thing with perseverance. I have prayed that prayer before. God, I want to be a patient person, and I want to be patient right now. And it just doesn't work that way, okay? We want to go to IWantPerseveranceRightNow.com, give them our credit card, and then have it downloaded onto our hard drive. It doesn't work that way. Even Paul says... In the New Testament, again in Philippians, he says, I have learned how to be content. That's another one of those character issues that we have to learn. We have to learn patience. We have to learn perseverance. We have to learn to be courageous. We have to learn contentedness. Even Paul says, I've learned how to do this. God just didn't didn't just give this to me. Now, let me just take it a little bit further, and then we're done with this point. But this is really important. As we learn patience, perseverance, courage, contentedness, We're going to be placed in very discouraging situations. That is a given. The key is not to act in emotion on that discouragement. That is a huge, huge deal. Joseph never acted out of emotion on his discouragement. Do you understand? It would have been very easy in his discouragement to have an affective emotional reaction to beautiful Mrs. Potiphar coming to him and saying, I am yours, you can take me, and nobody's going to know. He could have very easily given into that temptation. Instead, he said, no, I'm going to remain faithful even though I'm discouraged. It could have been very easy for him to look at the cupbearer and the baker and say, you know what, you guys get lost. I have my own problems. You go find somebody else to help you. But he didn't. He didn't give into that temptation. In fact, his suffering led to humility, as I said. He's using his giftedness in order to help people now. The last point I want to make is that God is with us. Whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, whether we understand it or not, God is with us. The question is, like Joseph, do other people see God with you? When we go through troubling times, when we suffer, when we go through tribulation... It's a magnificent opportunity for other people to see God with us and have it, have it be a testimony of God's reality. So the question is, do other people see God with us? Now, hear me here, okay? I am not talking about acting um, with presumption. I'm not talking, and th- this kind of gets me, it probably gets you too. I'm not talking about behaving with a false sense of piety. I'm talking about 
living life with the confidence and the humility of knowing that God is with you, He is in you, He is around you, He is under you, He's above you, He's beside you, and He is leading you all the way by His Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the New Testament books that I really love is Colossians. And a couple of weeks ago, I was reading through Colossians again, and I suddenly realized that Colossians 3 is the perfect description of Joseph's life in God 4,000 years earlier. Uh, turn to Colossians 3, and this is where we'll finish up today. It's uh, page 639 in the Bibles if you're using from underneath the uh, chairs. So this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. So he's writing uh, uh, believers in Christ, and he's saying, listen, you have a new identity because Christ is in you. Are you living in your new identity? Are you leaning into your new identity? Have you put off the old you and put on the new you? And he says it like this. If then you have been raised with Christ, and the assumption is you have been, I'm writing a church, I want you to seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's Joseph's life. Even during his 13 years of trouble, he set his mind on God and was faithful to God and did not set his mind on things of the world. Was he involved in the world? Was he in the world? Was he doing things in the world? Yes, but that did not rule his life. If it did, he would have slept with Ms. Potiphar, but he didn't. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yahweh's life was hidden in Joseph as well, in a sense that Joseph was able to live it out. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Put all of this stuff to death because Christ has redeemed you. Because the risen Christ has saved you, put all of this stuff to death. Sexual immorality, Ms. Potiphar. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. You were once this person who walked in these things when you were living in them. But now, because of Christ in your life, you must put them all away. Put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If ever there was somebody who had a right to be angry and use obscene talk, it was Joseph, but he didn't. He was kind and courteous and humble and submitted to others and submitted to God. He wasn't like that at all. Verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is, is all and He is in all. Notice Joseph didn't really care who he was serving and who he was working for and who he was saving. He was saving Egyptians even though he was a Hebrew. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion heart, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This should be your identity now because of what Christ has done in your life. Put on all of these things, including bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do you think Joseph might have a forgiveness issue with his brothers? 
Do you think that there might just be this idea that maybe revenge would be more fun than forgiving his brothers? We're going to look at that the next two weeks, this confrontation with his brothers. Verse 14, And above all these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And then I love these three last words. And be thankful. In all of this, be thankful. Be thankful for what Christ has done in your life. Now, I love this imagery. I love this picture. Joseph emerged after 13 years. He emerged out of slavery. He emerged out of prison to do what? To be God's instrument to give life to everybody in the world. God's purpose for Joseph was to come busting out of that prison, present Pharaoh with this plan, which ends up saving everybody in the world instead of disaster seven years later. Think about Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, was put in the tomb, and three days later he came busting out of that tomb, alive, resurrected. What did he come busting out of that tomb to do? To give life to this world. A world that really doesn't necessarily deserve it. A world that really doesn't want to have anything to do with God. Yet God does this through His Son because He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but instead will have everlasting life. He did this through His Son so that through His resurrection you and I could defeat death, defeat sin, and have victory and live with Him forever. In that respect, Joseph is sort of a a foreshadowing or a kind or a type of Jesus. But Jesus is the real deal. Tim Keller says it this way, Joseph is the better and true... I'm sorry, Jesus is the better and truer Joseph. So in Joseph, we see this foreshadowing of the gospel. In Jesus, we have the real gospel. Well, I'm going to pray and uh, Sean is going to come. Next week, we see the big confrontation between Joseph and his brothers. God, we thank you for the truth of your word we thank you for what it means to us and how we can learn from it god we ask you that you would give us the courage and the patience and the perseverance to be able to live as joseph did but we know that the only way we can do that is to allow jesus to rule our lives and so god we ask you to to help us with that we ask it in jesus name amen